Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and the moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, February 6, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, February 4th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,507. That's one eight five zero seven. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,508. That's one eight five zero eight. This morning, a vision for you presents. I found a power. Powerless. In step one, we find complete despair, frustration, and bewilderment. The mental obsession condemns us to pick up that first bite when we don't want to. And the phenomenon of craving condemns us to continue eating once we start. This happens again and again and again and again. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive overeating by ourselves. Our efforts, our energy, and our desire have not delivered the hoped-for results. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. The big book says we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how were we to find this power? Finally cornered by our disease, we stand at the jumping off place. We begin that search, an undertaking to find power, an undertaking that will lead us through the remainder of the 12 steps. With us today to share about her search for power is Joe M., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Joe is dedicated to our way of life, which includes being a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. Good morning, Joe, and thank you. One moment as we get through this technical difficulty. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. Joe, star one to unmute. She's gonna. Our speaker is gonna call in. Okay. Can you can you hear me? Okay now. I sure hear you. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. We love technology. Okay. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, thank you, Leah. Hi. My name is Joe, and I am a compulsive overeater, and I am um, honored to um, be with you today. I will be talking about the topic. I found a power. 
But I first need to tell you where I come from so that everything else I say makes sense. I have a condition inside of me that drives me to medicate with food. This condition has nothing to do with common sense, being rational, being fair, being reasonable. It is a very powerful condition that is not subject to my good thinking. I've had this condition for a really long time and it will never go away. This inner state of reality is chronic and progressive. I will never be cured of it. I am powerless over the intensity of this condition, the progressive nature of it, and the fact that it will be with me for the rest of my life. All of my attempts at controlling this inner condition failed, and they failed miserably. I didn't know what I suffered from until I came to OA, and I was presented with a program of recovery that is specifically designed to treat the condition I have. I had no idea that my condition at the heart of it isn't about food, but is about my spiritual condition. Now, it's true that my first obvious symptom is the overeating. And it was that very painful symptom that drove me to OA in the first place. But the eating is a symptom and not the root of the problem. The root of the problem started early in my life. I remember being five or six years old, and I was at my birthday party. I was in my living room, and we were playing musical chairs. There were all these kids in my home, and I didn't know them well. They, weren't, they were schoolmates, but they were not friends. And I was really uncomfortable. I was anxious. I felt overwhelmed at the activity and all the kids and adults who were in my home who normally weren't there. I had nowhere to go with these feelings. I had to try to handle them alone. In the dining room, there were birthday paper plates with treats on them, salted snacks that we didn't normally get at home. And I would sneak away from the party and go into the dining room to shove some of those salty snacks into my mouth without anyone seeing me. Somehow I knew that what I was doing was not okay, but I had to do it anyway because that was the only way I could try to manage my feelings. It worked temporarily in that it gave me a reprieve from the overwhelming social anxiety I had, but of course it could not resolve the underlying need, which was to have the party end and I have my house back to myself. As the years went on, this became a pattern. I had very uncomfortable feelings, and I had nowhere to go with them. I'm afraid. I have nowhere to go with that. I'm angry. I have nowhere to go with that. I'm anxious. I have nowhere to go with that. I'm resentful. I have nowhere to go with that. I'm self-doubtful. I have nowhere to go with that. Well, I found a place to go with all of that. And that place was the food. It quieted down the screaming inside of me. Temporarily, of course, 
but that temporary soothing effect was enough for me to remember it for next time. So I developed a dependency on overeating. I developed a physical dependency and I developed a mental dependency. And eventually, probably by the time I was a young adolescent, I became what the big book calls the real alcoholic. I became the real compulsive overeater. In the big book on pages 20 and 21, they talk about the different types of drinkers. The moderate drinker, who can take it or leave it alone. The hard drinker, who can stop or moderate if given a sufficient reason. And the real alcoholic, who, at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. And that's me. I became someone who lost all control of my eating once I started to eat, either my binge foods or too much volume. I had lost control. And once I passed into that third group, the real compulsive overeater, I was never going to go back into one of the other two groups. This is the nature of powerlessness. I am not able to move myself into being a hard eater or a moderate eater. And not only that, I am unable to move myself into being someone who will ever figure out where to go with my fear, anxiety, anger, resentment, self-doubt, and so on. And it is essential for me to know this because in the state of not overeating, I still have all this stuff that goes on inside of me. It needs a place to go if I'm not going to go to the food. So if I'm not going to go to the food, where am I going to go? And what I have learned and what I keep learning is that I am powerless over the fact that there is only one place I can go and have any peace of mind. And one of the central sobering facts of my life is that I am powerless over my need for power. The kind of power that restores a person like me to my right mind. I am not in control of the type of power I need to be restored to sanity. I am not in control of the source of that power, the nature of it. Believing that I can decide which power to go to would be like saying, I'm thirsty and I believe that motor oil will quench it. Motor oil will not quench my thirst. Only water will do that. I'm powerless over that fact. I'm powerless over this inner condition I have and I'm powerless over where I need to go to get well. When I embarked on my recovery journey, I was not seeking power, but I found a power. I did indeed find it. It was an unexpected result of just trying to get out of pain. I was desperate to become free of an addiction that was killing me. And I was so desperate 
that I did all the crazy things you guys suggested. And there was no forethought, really, for me. As I look back on it, I didn't say, oh, gee, I'm going to admit my powerlessness now. Or, okay, now is the time to come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. Okay, now I'm going to do a fearless and searching moral inventory of myself. Most of the steps before step nine did not come with any considerable thought for me. I was desperate and in pain, and that made me willing to do all the ridiculous things you guys told me to do. And then step nine. I found this power in the middle of step nine. I was overcome by an energy I had not known before. I was experiencing a release of something inside me that took over my body and soul in such a beautiful way. On page 83, it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. I was painstaking about my steps eight and nine. Why? Because other people were involved now. I was going to go out and make amends to them. And I had to carefully and with my sponsor's guidance be discerning about what I was doing. Up until step eight, it was all about me. But now other people were involved and my motivation for going out and repairing that damage was to get free of the pain I felt for having harmed them. And I would not have used this language at the time, but I was powerless over the process I needed to follow in order to get free. I just wanted free of the pain, so I was willing to do the work. But what happened was I didn't just get free of the pain. I was introduced to a power greater than myself, a power that is so beautiful, so life-giving, so energetic, that words can't completely describe it. I became whole. I became unified. I no longer had all the painful feelings that were rolling around in my soul. Something big was being healed. My consciousness had opened up. My heart had opened up. I became someone I didn't recognize, and I liked the new me much more than the old me. And then this power, the power that I had found, was leading me to do all kinds of things that I never thought to do before, things like help another compulsive overeater, be a very conscientious employee, become a highly responsible pet owner a generous and thoughtful family member and friend, an effective community member, a modest and contributing member of society. It was this power that I found that enabled me to do all of this and continues to enable me to do this. The Big Book uses different language to describe what happens when we get access to this power we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. Our roots have grasped a new soil. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. 
we have had a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We have had huge emotional changes and rearrangements. There has been a revolutionary change in our way of living and thinking. So if you're wondering whether or not you have found a power greater than yourself, measure your experience against this language and see if it fits. We talk a lot about developing a concept of this power that we are supposed to find. And I can share my own experience of that. I found the power, as I say, in step nine. But I didn't have a name for it until about a year later. In that one-year period, I was living with the power, getting to know it and wanting to stay in touch with it. And that desire to stay in touch with it was a motivator for me to learn about and practice step 10. Because now that I had gotten clean inside, I was able to recognize when I had a disturbance because now I had something to compare it to. I was motivated to learn about and practice step 11 so I could have more and more of this power that I had found. And I was motivated to learn about and practice step 12 because now I had a built-in desire to help other people go through this same journey so they could find a power as well and to share the good energy of this power with other people outside the fellowship. So I was having a direct experience of this power. Now, the whole time I had been in OA, I was hearing the word God, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. I'm more than bristled with antagonism. I had lots of experiences with the word God before I had come to OA that were really unpleasant, starting in junior high and all the way up to my time in OA. But while I was in OA, I was starting to soften. For example, I was okay with saying the serenity prayer, which uses the word God. I was okay with saying the third step prayer, which uses the word God. I was okay with saying the seventh step prayer, which uses the word God. And I always said those prayers out loud with other people. But I did not want to use the word God to describe anything personal to me. And I remember it was about a year later after having been introduced to this power I was in my bedroom and I was kneeling at my bed and looking up through the window and into the sky, being outraged and saying to this thing, why didn't you stop me from being abused as a child? This was a painful thought and a painful question. And as I thought about it and I let the question sink in, I thought about my step nine experience and how this energy was so good and so kind and so loving and so generous and so compassionate. 
And I realized that I could not believe in a power that could have prevented the abuse, but didn't. That would have created an untenable conflict inside of me that would have been unbearable. So I decided that this power was not physical, that this power had no control over physical reality. It was only an energy, and that its qualities were all the qualities that came up inside of me in my step nine. Love, tolerance, kindness, generosity, acceptance, compassion, and so on. This was a huge step forward for me in my recovery because I was able to have my own experience of recovery while not having to worry about any conflict between my experience of this power and material reality. All the scientific truths, all of history, everything I observe and know about is entirely consistent with this power greater than myself. And I need that. I need to be at peace with my concept of this power. But I will also say that before I had a concept, I had an experience. And whether anyone has a concept before or after their experience, the important thing is to have the experience itself because there is only one kind of power that will restore someone like me, and that's the power that is released as the result of the first nine steps. And then I learned to live on a daily basis using steps 10, 11, and 12. A lot of us come into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous with preconceived ideas of power. We've had bad experiences of people abusing their power at our expense. We ourselves have abused our own power at other people's expense. We have witnessed competition, manipulation, coercion, lying, violence, and lawbreaking in the name of getting or keeping power. We see that all over the world. We have experienced those in power withholding from us that which we need. So when we get here and we are told that we have to find a power by which we can live, it gets our shackles up and we are hesitant. Some of us are angry. We are skeptical. We don't really believe that some power can restore us. So I want to tell you something. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your beliefs are, you too can find a power that will restore you to sanity. And the reason I can be so confident in making that claim is that first, we suffer from a common problem. And our problem is powerlessness. I have the same problem that you do. Secondly, we have a common solution that is offered to us through a program of recovery that we have borrowed from Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And this program is laid out simply and clearly in the big book. And it's not a mystery. And thirdly, we have a fellowship of people you can lean on for guidance because we have a fellowship in Overeaters Anonymous. So you are not alone. And you have people who have gone before you who can show you the way. And no matter what, if you suffer from compulsive overeating, you can recover from compulsive overeating. This program is designed for the powerless. And it is designed to enable the powerless to find a power. The big book says lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. What will this power be like for you? I can't say. I don't know what your experience will be like. What I can say is that if you give yourself over to this program, you will have an experience that is uniquely yours and it will replace the experience you are having now in the food and in the bondage of self. I am just like you and I found a power and if I can find a power, so can you. I want to return to my experience of using the word God for me and I Share this in case it's helpful to anybody else. As I said, I did not want to use that word. And after about a year of having made my amends and been introduced to this power, I had opened myself to asking that question in the bedroom. And one day I was doing some writing, recovery writing, and I had my notebook and I had my pen. And my pen was hovering above the paper. And I had been writing and writing about something. I don't remember what I was writing about. It was recovery-related. My pen was hovering above the paper, and I let myself bring the pen down to the paper and write, God, help me. And I started using God from then on for myself. And when I use the word God, it's to describe the power that I have told you about. That's what I need when I use the word God. The big book says, do not let any prejudice you may have against such terms deter you from seeking what they mean to you. And I remember reading that passage, and I said to the writers of the big book, you know what, I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to look at this big book as if it was written just for me. And so I use the word God today, and it doesn't bother me to use the word God and I like the word and because it's for me. I don't know what other people mean when they use the word. There's a lot of baggage associated with that word for a lot of us when we come to OA. And I want to tell anybody who's listening to this, if you bristle with antagonism at the word God, I want to assure you of something. You don't ever have to use that word if you don't want to. 
The important thing is that you have an experience and you get to name it. And you don't have to give this power any name if you don't want to. For me, for this power, it doesn't matter what I call it. It only matters that I call it. And for people like us, we call the power through the steps of OA. So I hope this has been helpful, and I will pass. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Joe, for this beautiful and profound presentation this morning. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope and all your personal insights regarding your process with us today. The Share ID for this presentation, 18,514. That's 18514. Joe's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment with Joe. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your first name, including the first letter of your last name. Star 1 to unmute. Adele R. Adele R. Roxanne M. Roxanne M. Allison P. Allison P. And there was somebody before Allison. Kathleen, is that correct? Kathleen. Kathleen K. Thank you. Kathleen K. Anyone else want to join this group? Jamie M. Jamie M. Okay, let's go with that. We have Adele R., Roxanne M., Catherine K., Allison P., and Jamie M. Please mute. Except for Adele R., it's your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Joe, so much for your relatable share. Um, I wondered if you could speak to... You mentioned the anxiety and the issues with self-worth, and I wondered if you could speak to how power has helped you with that when the food is no longer there. Thank you. Well, the program of recovery has a formula for us to follow no matter what is going on. So there's there's two steps that are designed to address different types of disturbances. Step 10 and step 11. So step 10 is for new resentments, new fears. Step 11 is for doubts and dilemmas. So if I'm having some anxiety, but it's not a resentment or fear, that's step 11. So how do I engage step 11? I think about, okay, Do I need to call somebody in program and talk about this with them? Do I need to ask some questions? Maybe I need to do some writing about it. Maybe I need to do the next right thing. Maybe I need to go do some food prep, for example, in the kitchen, and I just need to keep processing this and kind of give it some space and let it come up. 
Um, if it's a step 10, if it's a resentment or a fear, then that's running it through the inventory process. I've had many experiences of trying to manage a resentment. Um, and I don't think I'm ever going to get past this reality for me that I will try to manage my own resentments on my own. Um, and usually that's because I don't realize yet that it's a resentment. It's definitely a disturbance, but once I realize it's a resentment, then I know what to do with it, which is a step 10. Writing it out, who do I resent or what do I resent? What are the causes? What does it affect in me? Say the resentment prayer and then go on the right. Well, I use forms, forms that are based on the big book and looking at those four qualities. Where am I being selfish? Where am I being dishonest? Where am I being self-seeking? And where am I being afraid? And then giving that away to somebody who is in program and has recovery so that they know the errand that I'm on, either my sponsor or somebody else. Um, the program, this is a spiritual program. It is not a self-help program. I had a sponsor tell me one time, I'm so glad he told me this. He said, you know, people divvy up the program into this part, you know, there's an emotional part, and then there's a physical part, and then there's a mental part. And he said, a spiritual part. And he said, there is no spiritual part. It is a spiritual program. So anything I do, if I want peace of mind, I have to go down the spiritual path to deal with, you know, emerging anxieties and self-worth and things like that. It's a spiritual program. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Adele R. Roxanne M., star one to unmute. Um, thank you. This is Roxanne M., uh, recovering compulsive overeater. Thank you so much for your share. Uh, what I wanted to bring forward is, I mean, you present us, I believe you just presented us with the paradox that I am, you know, we are powerless over food, and actually at the same time, it is through powerlessness through our higher power that it's the doorway. And um, and uh, I love your example of of holding the pen above the paper, and I would like to hear more about this recognizing this doorway of um, paradox, um, if you can share a little more about that. Thank you. Well, the whole program is based on powerlessness. Everything I do in the name of my recovery is rooted in my powerlessness. Without powerlessness, I have no reason whatsoever to do anything in this program. And that is as true for me today as it was in the beginning. I will never be someone who has power over my condition. So it is imperative for me to stay rooted in that, to never forget my powerlessness. Um, powerlessness is not popular in our culture. <laughs> um, I don't know... I have not been exposed to any other area of life where powerlessness is actually promoted um, and where, in a way, it's celebrated. I feel celebratory when I see a newcomer come to my home group and she's devastated. 
when I see a newcomer come to my home group and he's devastated, I feel happy for them that they're devastated. Now, why would that be? Is it because I'm a masochist? No. It's because I know that only in being devastated is there any hope of recovery. That's the price of admission into the world of recovery. The price of admission that we pay to come to Overeaters Anonymous is pain. But the price of admission we pay into the world of recovery is the admission of powerlessness. It's that complete defeat. And the continuing admission of defeat, the continuing acknowledgement of it is the only thing that's going to keep us in recovery. And powerlessness does not mean helplessness. It means, you know, if I can't lift the car up over my head to get it somewhere, then I have to learn how to open up the car door and turn on the key and drive it somewhere. It, in admitting powerlessness, it closes off previous attempts at solving the problem and turns us in a completely different direction in getting our problem solved. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Roxanne M. Catherine K., your turn. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing today. I hope you could hear me all right. I'm in the truck. You had mentioned very early on in your presentation, you described the disease as you wanting to be powerful, if I understood it right. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Well, what I'm dealing with is a condition that's inside of me. It's almost as if this didn't happen, but it's almost as if I, I had an injection of some kind. <laughs> some, you know, somebody injected something into me, and now it's in me. Now, I'm not saying that actually happened. I'm just, I'm just trying to use a metaphor. So it's in me, and it operates a certain way. And the way that it operates is really painful. Well, I want relief from that pain, so of course I'm going to tr find whatever I can to quiet down the pain. And of course, that is an attempt at having control over the uncontrollable. Um, I am not criticizing myself in any way for my attempts at control before I came to OA, or even since I came to OA. I mean, I, I hadn't, you know, I was in OA for a while before I was introduced to the program of recovery. I was doing the best I could but I was trying to control that which cannot be controlled by me alone. And that is why, and, you know, uh, the admission of powerlessness is such a huge, huge deal for us because it is natural and I think even good in most areas to have agency over something. You know, if, if, my, if my living space is in disarray, I need to have agency to clean it up and to get it organized and do something about that. I need agency. If my, if my gas is low in my car, I need agency to go and fill the gas up. If I am 
concerned about a relationship and I need to talk to somebody, I need agency to send them an email or send them a text or give them a call or go and meet them. I need agency in that. So, of course, it makes sense. I'm trying to have agency over this thing, this stuff that's inside of me. Of course, I'm going to do that. And unlike other areas of life where the application of agency is effective, like getting my car filled up with gas, it isn't effective with this condition I have. It doesn't work. And I think our spiritual approach is so radical that a lot of people who come to OA don't stay here. Or if they do stay here, they try to find a way. I was, I did this too. Try to find a way to use OA to control the condition. And so it is a radical act to admit powerlessness, to say, I, I throw up my hands. I not throw up my hands. That's really not the right metaphor. It's more like I'm gonna, I take my hands off of it. I take my own isolated hands off of it. And I'm going to ask for someone else's help to show me the way to be alleviated of this because I'm completely out of options. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Catherine K. Allison P., star one to unmute. Good morning, everybody. Um, this is Allison from OA in North Carolina. Um, Joe, I want to thank you so much for your openness and your honesty. Um, the words that are coming from you, that are coming from higher power through you, have now had a profound impact on how I feel about what higher power is. I am recognizing I am trying to control my conditions and my life using OA2 and not higher power. Um, what I would like for my question for clarification is I want to make sure I heard your experience correctly. It was through steps one through nine that the power of higher power and not your own power started coming into your life. Is, is that Did I hear that correctly? Yes, you did hear that correctly, Allison. And I've become more courageous um, in saying that openly um, Joe did we lose you star one ton mute okay I was talking away can you hear me now I do Okay, yes, Allison, yes. In answer to your question, yes, you did hear that correctly. Um, we, that's how we get the power. We, we have to go through steps one through nine. Now, the reason I think it's important to state that is that the word God and power is used before step, you know, before that. It's used in some earlier steps. And I think what can happen is we can get confused and I think we can start pressuring ourselves to think that we're going to get access to the power before step nine. So if we got access to the power, for example, in step three, there would be no need 
for the remaining steps. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of all 12? Because I have to tell you, if I had gained access to the power and been relieved of my pain in step three, I would not have done a fearless and thorough moral inventory. Why would I do that? I would not have you know, given that all away to my sponsor. Why would I do that? Why would I have come into contact with the acute pain of having harmed other people in steps six and seven? Why would I do that? Why would I take a legal pad and write up, here's, here's who I harmed, what harm did I do, what amends do I owe, and then discuss all of that with a sponsor? Why would I do that? Why would I, why would I go out and make amends to the people I had harmed? Why would I go through all that humbling, humbling, humbling spiritual work? If I had, been, if I had gained access to power in step three, there would be no need for all the rest of that. So when I hear people talk about, especially new people, and I hear them, they are not through the inventory steps yet, and they're talking about God, I start wondering, what do you mean by that? You're using the word God, but you're not really naming the power that you're going to get access to because you haven't gotten access to it yet because you haven't gone through the inventory steps yet. So I think it's important. And whatever your belief system is, Maybe you don't use the word God, but you think you got power in step three. You haven't. We don't get it until step nine. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to pause. I don't want to go off on a tangent. So I'll stop there, and I hope that answers your question. Or I guess you didn't have a question. Well, no, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Allison P. Jamie M., your turn. Hi, this is Jamie. I'm from Minnesota. Um, thanks, Leah, for your service, and thanks, Joe, for your share this morning. Um, my question is, I have kind of trouble sometimes articulating my relationship with my higher power and how that came to be, because I suppose I don't totally know or understand it, but in speaking with sponsees about how they come to their higher power, do you have practices or, or things that you say to kind of help them along? And, um, you know, there are some times when a sponsee clearly isn't um, turning it over. And um, I'm, I just struggle sometimes with the words of how to, how to articulate that's what they need to do. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, my job as a sponsor is to be a guide for someone else for them to take the steps. I don't take anybody through the steps because I don't have that kind of power. But I can support someone else's journey as they take the steps. So I share my experience and I, I hold some boundaries. For example, when I'm guiding someone through the fourth step, I have them do it the big book method. I don't have them, you know, answer a list of yes and no questions. That's not the fourth step in my experience. So I'm a big book enthusiast. Um, so I, I use the big book as 
a guide for me to guide somebody else. Um, I never impose the word God on anybody I'm sponsoring. And I never use the word God in the generic. So I never say things like, God brought you to OA, or, um, you know, God wants you to be happy, because that's using it in the generic. And I'm a believer in only using the word God as it relates to me. And so I am really careful about that because I don't want anything that I say to get in the way of someone else's journey. And language has meaning and it has power. And especially when I'm first working with someone, I don't know what their experience is with spiritual language before they get here. And they deserve the space to have their own experience of this and then to use their own language without me imposing it on them. I'm also very intentional about asking someone, how do you like to start your call? Because the way that I sponsor, people call me daily. And most people like to do the serenity prayer. But I don't ever assume that that's what someone wants to do. And if they want to do a different prayer, that's totally fine, as long as it's a program prayer. Um, but I don't, I don't ever say to someone, let's do this, you know, if, if we haven't already talked about it, I don't say, let's do the serenity prayer. I don't assume that that's going to be okay with them. Um, some people have been spiritually harmed by the time. I think a lot of us have been spiritually harmed when we come to OA. And I'm not trying to make victims out of us, but that's, I think that's a reality for a lot of people. And I don't want to um, create new spiritual harm for someone by imposing that. Um, and you asked about how they will come to their higher power. They will come to it through steps one through nine. So my job is to guide them through that process. And my sponsoring of them changes once they get through their step nine because they don't need the same kind of guidance because now they've had um, a direct experience of their own higher power. And it's kind of like helping somebody ride a bike. Like you're kind of, you're kind of going along, but you're on the side, you're kind of hoping, you know, helping them not fall down. But then once they get the groove of it, okay, I can remove my hand. You're, you know how to ride a bike. Um, and when you talk about when a sponsee isn't turning it over, there's only one way we can turn things over, and that's through the steps. And sometimes we get caught up in slogans. Um, we can take pieces of what's in the big book and turn it into slogans. And slogans are not the steps. Um, so if I tell someone, well, it doesn't sound like you're turning it over, I don't think that's helpful. What is more helpful, I think, is saying something like, if I've already, if I've already um, guided someone through the inventory process and they know what that is and they know what step 10 is, I will say, you know, you might want to ask yourself if you have a resentment. And they say, and they'll think about it. And they'll call me the next day, you know what, yeah, I have a resentment and I wrote it out and I gave it away to somebody. Great, they know what to do. Um, 
before the inventory, the way they turn it over is steps four through nine. So it's always it's always um, step work to turn it over, rather than rather than just deciding, okay, I'm going to turn it over. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Jamie M. Who else would like to pose a question to our speaker, Joe? Press star one. Melissa W. Melissa W. Brenda A. Felicia S. from New Jersey. Melissa W. Brenda A. New York. Okay. I missed a few. I have Pete B., Brenda A., Felicia, Melissa W., Who did I miss? Right after Pete. Or so I thought. Beth B. Beth B. Okay. In this group, I have Pete B, Brenda A, Felicia, Melissa W, Beth B. Let's start with Pete. Thanks, Leah. PP, compulsive overeater, recovered today by God's grace and mercy. Thanks for taking thanks for uh, your service, Leah and Joe. Thanks so much for your uh, deep and heavy, eloquent presentation. I have a question for you. Uh, step ten says that our next step is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. You shared how you what your ten step practice is like. Can you share how you have grown in understanding and effectiveness in the other areas of your life, more specifically in your home, occupation, and affairs? Yes. Well, first of all, I want to comment on the language of Step 10, which I love that they do this in the big book. Um, they use understanding and effectiveness. Throughout the book, they use language that is clear to me that it is both our inner life and our outer life. It is both what we experience inside and how we show up in the world. It isn't just about how I'm doing internally. It's also about how I'm treating other people. How am I showing up for my responsibilities? Um, and so I really love that about the book. And so in step 10, I'm supposed to grow in my understanding and effectiveness. So I'm supposed to grow in my understanding, which is internal, and my effectiveness, which is external. That's how I read that. Um, so your question is, is really good. My respective home, occupation, and affairs. I mean... The program, I think, is kind of, um, I think in a way, this program is kind of like bait and switch. It's like, hey, got a problem with food? Come to Overdue's Anonymous. Oh, what is this really about? It's really about relationships. And it's very humbling for me. It's, it's, it's so humbling for me. I, right now I'm going through some experiences where I'm really having to look at how am I using or not using communication in my relationships. And I'm starting to take risks in my relationships and coming forward and communicating things that I haven't communicated before and making an effort to do it in a kind way. This is a new area for me. Um, in my occupation, I work full time and I have opportunity to um, interact with people at work who challenge me. I mean, they just 
they do. They, they either have work habits or communication habits that ruffle my feathers. And so I can give you an example. So I serve on a team at work. And if you ever serve on a team, you know that there are team dynamics. And there's an aspect of the team dynamic that has been bothering me for some time. And I recognize, like, you know what, Joe? You need to talk to the team coach about this. That's the appropriate place to go. And so I asked for a meeting with her. And we're going to meet tomorrow. And I, my job in having that meeting is to tell her what I am struggling with and ask for her coaching around it. Ask for her input about it. Because my default setting is to blame the other people. I mean, and I, I don't want this to be true, but I'm really good at blaming. And if I'm going to be a decent person at work, I don't get away with that. I had an experience um, a few months ago at work. I was really bothered. Someone else made a decision. I was so bothered by it. it I, I was upset, not just bothered. I was really upset about it. And I did inventory around it. And um, what came out of that inventory was I realized that I needed a mission statement for my work life. And my mission statement for my work life is my mission at work is to support the mission of my organization through conscientious labor and respectful treatment of my coworkers. And that's it. So respectful treatment of coworkers, that means all my coworkers. And, and also speaking my truth. I did this the other day at work during a work meeting where I was processing something with my team that was bothering me. Um, and it wasn't something that anybody else was doing, but it was about the, we, I won't bore you with the detail, but we get, we get work requests from people outside of our team. And I was just saying, this is this and this, and if you want to do this and this. And, um, and one of the other people on the team said, well, Joe, you know, it only takes five minutes to do. I don't know what the big deal is. And I said, it might not be a big deal to you, but it is to me. So just saying that, just saying, speaking up, prevented me from getting resentful. And that's another thing that I'm, you know, that I'm practicing right now. I need to speak up right now so that I don't get resentful. The, there's a passage in the 12 and 12 uh, in step 10, and it says, nothing pays off like restraint of pen and tongue. And I have found that to be true, restraint, restraint of pen and tongue. I also had to learn that sometimes um, release of pen and tongue is necessary so long as I do it in a respectful way, a, a kind way, um, is necessary for me to have peace of mind. So I found both things to be true. So I'm practicing that right now. And I'm also not only I'm good at blaming, I'm also really good at hiding. Um, I'm good at concealing. So to come forward and ask for something that I want, ask for something that I need, talk about something that's of, of concern to me, that's for me growing in understanding and effectiveness. Um, because I, this power that I found doesn't want me to be constricted and tight and withholding and concealing. It wants me to come out and be myself and express myself, but not at somebody else's expense. 
Um, and with regard to my home, I mean, I, I live alone. I don't live with anyone. I'm not in a romantic relationship. So I, you know, I, I'm not bumping up against personalities inside my personal space. Um, I do have a couple of animals. And so I kind of, I mean, in a way, they're a reflection back to me how I'm doing, how responsible am I being, um, because they need care and they need love, et cetera. And I also have neighbors. I live in a fourplex and I have um, three neighbors who live in the, their various units. And I'm very cognizant that my behavior affects them. So, for example, I have an alarm that goes off in the morning. I get up and I come right away to turn it off because I don't want my upstairs neighbor to hear my alarm. Because, I don't, you know, I take my shoes off at the door because I don't want the sound of the noise bothering my upstairs neighbor. Um, I... Uh, uh, I had I went I introduced my when I moved in here I I proactively introduced myself to all of my neighbors say hi my name is Joe I just moved in I'm in unit two just want to let you know I'm here um, so that I'm making a friendly introduction um, because we're neighbors I want to be on good terms with them um, and because of that I think my friendliness and my respect. One of my neighbors asked me to take care of her cat over the weekend when she was gone over it was like over the Christmas holiday um, and I did a very responsible job for her um, I took care of her cat really well I, I did what she asked me to do. I left her a note at the end so she knew what happened over the weekend everything her cat is okay and everything um, and I'm also um you know sometimes I'll have like you know somebody gave me a um, a plant recently and plants die in my care and they uh, and so like I tried to take care of it like I, I could tell it wasn't working out and I thought you know my neighbor my neighbor Rebecca she really likes plants I wonder if she would like this plant so I texted her and said hey I've got this plant and but I had to be I had to be fully transparent and say um, you know I it's not it, the plant isn't in good shape I tried to care of it I said I think it's dehydrated so that I'm telling her I'm, I want to offer you a plant, but I also want you to know this is the shape that the plant is in. I'm not trying to pass off a plant and try to make it look like it's in better shape than it is. So, and she said, yeah, I'd love to have the plant. Um, these are small things that I'm telling you about. I mean, I've heard stories on this line and in other meetings, people talking about huge, huge, huge things with their spouses and their children and their grandchildren and I don't have those big stories. My circumstance is that I live a very quiet, modest life. And if I can show up in a quiet, modest way, that's my power greater than myself working for me. But I also will say regarding home, I think when they say home, they're talking about family. And I will tell you that I had an experience back in December um, with family that was totally, totally higher power. Um, my uh, my dad was turning 85, and his wife um, planned a dinner party for him. And um, so she's going to invite um, all the family members. And admittedly, I, large family gatherings are hard for me. They're, they just um, they just cause me anxiety. Um, but it's like, okay, it's my dad's 85th birthday, um, and I I want to show up for for his 85th birthday. So. Uh, so everybody's there, and then there are more people than I even thought were going to be there. Um, a, a lot of my dad's and his wife's friends were also there. So this group that I thought was going to be like seven people was like 13 people. 
I'm highly introverted and um, like, oh, okay, <laughs> the, the anxiety went up a little bit. Um, but the higher power allowed me to show up and be fully present and participating. So I have a sister and she's in a new dating relationship and um, I had never, I hadn't met this gentleman. He was there. She introduced me to him. I was very friendly to him. I engaged in very positive conversation with him. Um, I said hello to my other sister. I hadn't seen her in a while. Our relationship has been kind of, kind of rocky uh, of late. And while we were, so while we're, um, so I'm, I'm participating and I'm like, okay, I'm a guest at my dad and, and his wife's home. While everyone's kind of milling around and socializing, my dad's wife is getting the dinner ready. And she was making this incredible meal. It was like, I, and I'm not kidding, it was like it was at a hotel. And she, um, she's a professional cook. It's what she does for a living. She's really good at it. And I had this thought, I want to take a photo of what she's preparing so that she can have the photo so she can remember what she did. Because as I'm watching her, she's all involved in making the food. And honestly, that was the only thought I had. Take, you know, pull out your camera and take one photo. And that's all I was going to do. Well, I took the, took the camera out, took my phone out, and I just, I took the one photo and all of, all of a sudden it's like, well, just keep, just keep taking photos. So I just, I just kept taking, like, but I was concerned, like, well, I don't, want to inter- I don't want to interrupt other people's experiences. So I was careful not to interrupt people that we're sitting down, I'm taking photos. There's two different tables of people. I'm getting up, taking photos of the other people, taking photos of individual people, taking photos of the table as a whole, taking photos of two people together. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of photos. And one of my sisters said, oh, Joe, I'm, I'm glad you're taking photos. She said, because I forgot my phone at home. So I took, I just let myself go ahead and follow this prompt, keep taking photos, keep taking photos, keep taking photos. And I had the next couple days off and getting those photos to everybody there became my number one spiritual priority. And I got the photos. I figured out a way to get get all the, I ended up taking 109 photos. I was going to take one. I took 109 I uploaded them and got them already. I, I went out and got, went out to, to three different stores to get flash drives. Put got them, put them on a bunch of flash drives. Put them, put cards in the mail. Put the flash, got the flash drives in the, in the mail to all my family members. Emailed everybody and said, "Hey everybody, here's the photos that I took at Dad's uh, birthday party. Um, here's a link. I have on, I had they're all online. And I said I've also snail mailed each of you a flash drive, so you can have a flash drive and you don't have to depend on." my online account. And um, people were like really grateful for that. And my dad's wife especially, and she said, Joe, I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you took these photos. She said, your dad wanted to take photos, but he didn't want to interrupt other people's experiences. So especially, you know, thank you um, from, from me and your dad. And because I followed that prompting, my whole family now has a photographic heirloom of my dad's 85th birthday because when someone's 85, you don't know how many more birthdays they have. Um, And that's what I got to do. That's what I got to create for my family because of this power greater than myself. And 
it was an unexpected but beautiful thing to be able to do. So that's just an example. And again, you know, it's a small thing in the scheme of the world. You know, these are small acts. Anything I do in the name of my higher power, it's a small act. People do this stuff all the time all over the world. And much, much, much bigger things people do. But this is what I can do in my part of the world. This is what I can do in my local circumstance. I mean, I did, a, I did an inventory and I real, around some of what came up in my inventory was the political system. And what I realized was I hadn't gotten involved. So I went and became an election judge and I served as an election judge for 10 years. You know, I got, I got to work on election day and help other people vote. I mean, and again, it's a small thing, but it was important to me. I made a contribution, um, and, you know, and I, I get to do that kind of thing. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Pete. It does. Thank you. Thank you, Pete, for your question. Brenda A., star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Joe. Thank you so much for an extraordinary share. Um, I'm Brenda A. I'm a food addict, food addict recovering one day at a time in New York. Um, I'd like to ask you, Joe, about relapse. I, within a two-year period, have relapsed twice. I am reworking the steps, and I have been, I'm going to use the term blessed, it's totally a-religious. I never, I don't have any religious background. Using the, the term God is difficult for me, but um, it now flows freely. And at my first recovery in step nine, I was able to give away a lot of pain while I made amends to my family members who were gone, who predeceased me. I'd like to know how you handle relapse, either personally or or with sponsees. Thank you. Well, I definitely have had relapse um, before my current abstinence. My current abstinence is November 10th, 2009. So I haven't relapsed since then. Um, relapse, I'm sorry to say, is almost universal in Overeaters Anonymous. I don't think that's because that's natural. Um, I think it's, I have to be careful of what I say. I, I, don't, I don't want to be controversial. I think we need to do a better job in Overeaters Anonymous communicating the message of powerlessness. Because when I did, when I did have my relapses before my current recovery, it was because I hadn't really gotten attached to my step one. And what I see in others is there's two things that I see happening when people go into relapse. I mean, and all of it is a symptom of losing their connection with step one. So one is um, the, um, the either the not understanding or the letting up of the continual need for inventory with new disturbances. That's one. And two, not sponsoring not really practicing that step 12 within the fellowship. When I see those two things as being critical factors in someone going back to relapse, but the reason that 
the reason that the, that those happen is that someone somehow thinks that they have power over their new disturbances. So if I think I have power over my new disturbances, I don't think I have to inventory my new disturbances because I'm just going to try to control them on my own. And if I think I can pick and choose among the steps or I think I can take step 12 or leave it, and if I get confused about what step 12 means, then I'm not going to really be sponsoring actively. I'm not going to be carrying the message actively. And there is confusion out there about step 12. Some people think step 12 is about doing service. That is not step 12. Step 12 says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Carrying the message to compulsive overeaters is communicating that there is a way out. It's intensive work with other compulsive overeaters. It's getting on the phone with those newcomers. It's sharing the message at meetings. That's carrying the message. If you're updating a phone list, if you're, if you're, you know, or if you're being the treasurer, um, those type of, you know, if you're sending out medallions, those are service positions that support the infrastructure of your meeting. And those things are important and they matter and they support, they support our recovery. But it isn't step 12. So, and I, there's also confusion about step 10. Um, so, I, uh, what I like to say to people is, you can come out of relapse and never go back in. Re, the, the foregone conclusion of working the steps is that you don't ever relapse. The steps are designed to keep us from relapsing. So if there's relapse, something got missed. So what I do when I'm working, if I'm working with someone who is coming out of relapse, what I tell them is, you have the opportunity for a new way of life now. This, we're not, I'm not going to support your cycle in going in and out and in and out and in and out of the food. I do not sponsor that kind of behavior. I sponsor people who are willing to say, I give up. I'm willing to follow the steps, and please show me what to do. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Brenda for your question. Felicia, your turn. I am Felicia S. from New Jersey, a grateful uh, recovered compulsive overeater. Um, thank you for everybody here who uh, is doing service and put this together, and thank you so much for our speaker. My question for you is, um, could you tell us a little bit from an 11-step practice um, morning and evening, what your current um, process is. I'm sure it's evolved uh, over time and, and where you are now with your 11-step practice. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, in the morning, I I do a reading and writing. I And I've, there's been, I've had a lot of trial and error around that. I find that the fastest and most effective way that I get connected to this power is through writing, writing a recovery writing. So right now I'm writing out of the big book. Um, I was in the chapter We Agnostics, and now I'm in the chapter How It Works. And I read a little bit until I feel inspired. Uh, I might be inspired by a part of a sentence. I might be inspired by a whole sentence. Often it's a phrase within a sentence that I'm inspired by. And once I feel that spark of inspiration, yep, that's what I'm supposed to write on. And I write on it. And 
people get connected in different ways. That's how I get connected. I mean, that's the very first thing. Um, and I will, I will admit to you that there's a real, there's a real um, danger for me right when I wake up. And I, I use the word danger kind of carefully because I've had a whole night of being disconnected from this higher power. And I wake up with untreated compulsive overeating every day. And most days when I wake up, I don't feel good mentally because I'm waking up with untreated compulsive overeating. And so I do that reading and writing before I get out of bed. Because I've had, you know, I've had some days where I don't do the reading and writing right away. And my morning doesn't go very well. So I really, I, it's, it's a priority for me. And I actually will, I will do that reading and writing. And sometimes it means doing the reading and writing at the expense of other things or the, I, I need to do them later. Um, so that's what, I mean, that's one of the things I do. I have, there's, I, I have a routine in the morning that for me is part of my step 11 um, that really works for me. So, um, but that, that reading and writing is just critical. And then I have, you know, I, I, have, a, I, have, I have a routine that includes um, doing for my animals what they need me to do in the morning. So right now one of my animals needs medications and fluids and um, making sure they've got their food and, um, you know, cleaning out their litter and replacing their water and um, getting dressed and brushing my teeth. And then I've got my sponsor, sponsee calls. And that goes for about an hour and a half. Um, and getting my dishes done, and doing one or two recovery phone calls. Um, and that's really important to me, too. And this is before I start my workday. There are things I need to do before I start my workday. And I will say that doing one or two recovery phone calls is critical for me before I start my workday. It gets me ready for my day. Um, there's, there's a, um, I was listening to an AA speaker. I listen to a lot of AA talks. I, I love um, really strong AA talks, and it supports my OA recovery. I'm not in AA, but I, but I use them to help my OA recovery. And I was listening to this gentleman share one time in AA, and he shared this at the end of his talk. Um, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. I sought my fellow person and found all three. And it's not a coincidence to me that I feel more connected to this power greater than myself when I'm talking to my fellow compulsive overeaters. And these might be people in my network. These might be newcomers. Might be people who are calling, asking questions. That meaningful exchange between me and another person is just golden, and I need it. Um, so that's, that's my morning. And then in the evening, I do the review of the day, which is in the big book, just a set of questions. Um, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. It's a constructive review, not a destructive review. It's not paragraphs. It's just, you know, most of these are yes or no questions. Was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself which should be discussed with another person at once? I always put something in that question number three because I have a very deep long history of concealment and it's part of my recovery practice to reveal and disclose so that question three is my opportunity I I need to disclose something I need to discuss something I need to ask something 
of my sponsor. It's my opportunity to say, I, I don't know everything, and I need help, and I need input. So there have been times where this, it's unusual that I can't think of something, but sometimes it's really unusual when I can't think of something to discuss with my sponsor. And I will pause, like, I've got to think of something. I've got to think of something. I've got to think of something. Because I'm afraid of that part of me that conceals and withholds. That, that's just, it's, it's damaging to my recovery. Um, and then were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time, or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? Uh, but we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. Do I have any corrective measures? Um, and so I've gotten really good input from sponsors about the review, how to do the review, how to keep it effective, how to not complicate it. Um, and that's what I help the people that I sponsor do, um, the review of the day. It's just a scan of the day. Um, and so that's what I do at night. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Felicia S. Melissa W., your turn. Hi, Melissa W., um, grateful, compulsive, orator in New York. Thank you so much, Larry, for your service, Joe. Thank you so much for that incredibly moving share. Um, I was really taken with the story of you kneeling at your bedside um, with that um, moment with God. Uh, and and I, I related to that, and I'm just wondering, like, how were you able to uh, turn your life over to a God you didn't trust in earnest until you did, like certainly not a, a God, certainly a God that you were angry with. Like, what did that process look like? Well, honestly, Melissa, it was just blind faith. I had no idea what I was getting into. When I started that inventory, when I started the fourth step inventory, I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I just... I, I had nowhere else to go. I, mean, I just, I had a sponsor. I respected his recovery deeply. He was showing me how to do this. I, I had a new abstinence. I had a, so I had a new um, willingness, um, and I just, I just went for it. I didn't believe in the process. How, how could I believe in a process that I had never used before? Um, I just, I was just willing. I mean, I, I think. My, my experience on the way up to that point was getting, getting me ready for it. And I remember somebody sharing at a meeting one time, she said, only God can quiet an addiction. And I felt so sad because I thought, well, I don't have a God, so maybe my addiction will never be quieted. Um, and I didn't, and like, you know, when I was going through my inventory, I wasn't using the word God. I didn't, and I didn't turn my will in my life over to a God that I didn't believe in. That's not my experience. I was just flat out desperate. I don't know what else to do. I'm out of tricks. Someone else has something that I want. He has the kind of recovery that I want. He's showing me how to do this. I'm just going to do it. Um, I, I, I just, <laughs> it just, I wish I could be, I mean, that's, that was my experience. Um, I think 
this is why step one is so critical is because we have to understand that there's nowhere else for us to go because who would do all this if we had somewhere else to go? And it was really kind of, I guess I would say doing the work before I had the experience was kind of like I had to break a lot of my own laws to do this. Um, I had to take, you know, sitting in, sitting in OA meetings and they're talking about God this and God that. I'm just pissed off and impatient and, you know, sitting in the meetings anyway. Um, not arguing with people. I, I didn't argue with my sponsor. That's against the law for somebody like me. Going in and doing it. You know, I'm working full time. I'm dating my girlfriend at the time. I had a sick cat at the time. I did my fourth step in two weeks. Um, just willing to do it. A willingness born out of heaven. Just nowhere else to go. I mean, in uh, you know, they reference William James. Um, well, okay, I don't want to. I don't want to mention outside, but there's. Um, there are common there's there are common denominators among people who have um, experiences where they become change, and it's the three denominators are cal- uh, calamity, collapse, and an appeal to a higher power. And that's what happened to me. I had calamity before I came to OA with the food and all the, all that unmanageability. I had calamity. I had collapse in step one, and I appealed to a higher power in steps two through twelve. So that's how I'm describing it now. But at the time, I'm just like, I'm just taking the leap. And and I don't know where I'm going to land. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Melissa W., for your question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Joe, for your compelling and thought-provoking presentation this morning in Q&A. Much appreciated, as always. Always a delight to hear your experience, strength, and hope. Share ID for today's presentation, 18,514. That's 18514. And we're going to close from page 164. It's in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.